Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5? I'm going to actually read a few verses from the book of Ecclesiastes before that. All of this is found on page 11 in your bulletin if you'd like to look at that. But first, from the end of Ecclesiastes. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And from Ephesians 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. We ask your blessing. Now, fathers, we hear this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So one more time, I'd like to draw your attention this week to that 11th verse in the, the first scripture we read, the Ecclesiastes scripture. That verse that depicts God, it pictures God as a shepherd, guiding us, as shepherds do, by giving us wisdom. And notice what happens as God gives us wisdom as our shepherd. On one hand, we're told that wisdom goads us. We've talked about what a goad is. Not fun being on the receiving end of a goad. But God goads us towards some things that we need, but may not really want. And at the same time, wisdom, like firmly fixed nails that kind of hold your furniture together and hold your house together, wisdom gives us a sturdy, coherent understanding of the world and an understanding of how to live in the world. So it kind of nails some things down for us. And what I've been suggesting throughout this very brief series is that if you listen to, to wise people, thoughtful people, their conversations you'll notice that there are always three questions that are just barely under the surface as they think about the world and life in the world. One, one question is, what makes us who we are? It's a very big question. What is a human being? Who am I particularly? 
That's a very big thing in human life. A second question we looked at last week, what's to become of us? It's the question about the future. Is there any goal? Is there any purpose? Is there any destiny for our lives? Big question. Another question that's always right under the surface is, how are we to live in light of who we are and what we are? In light of what's to become of us, how do we live now? And of course, God, throughout the scripture, speaks to those questions many, many times. He shows us our identity, who we are. We were rebellious creatures. We turned away from our creator, but now we are, as Paul says here in Ephesians, we are beloved children because God has given grace to us. That's who we are. That's our identity. And as we saw last week, turning totally to kind of the other direction into the future, God also shows us our future inheritance. He shows us, as Paul describes it here, the kingdom, the rule of Christ and God. It's already here. It's unfolding. We will inherit the fullness of that kingdom. That's where our lives are going. And this week, God also gives instruction on how to live as his children, as heirs of that kingdom that's coming and is already here. But I'd like us to acknowledge, as we think about God instructing us on how to live, that when we hear instruction in our lives, whether it's from God or from anyone else, we're told how to live. There are impediments to that instruction. There are things that impede, that kind of block that instruction. I know a little bit about this as a pastor and as a parent now for many years. And just as a learner. So, for example, you guys, I've been telling you guys for many, many years, two basic things. God is your father. Jesus made that possible. That's your identity. You are children of God. That's who you really are. No matter what anyone else says to you, that God says that's your identity through Jesus. And I've told you about another thing. I've told you that you are living in and you are going to inherit God's kingdom. Right? That's the big story that your little story is in. Uh, we've talked about, you know, who you are, what you're going to inherit. Now, let's be real. Very often, you and I are not living like royal children, are we? We don't really live like we're children of the great king who rules and owns the heavens and the earth. We don't necessarily live like we are future rulers. And that being the case, we can hear God instruct us on how we ought to live, right? We can hear God say things like he does here, for example, in chapter 5, Ephesians 5, verse 4. So here's an example of how to live as a royal child of God, as a future ruler. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Those are out of place in your life. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Or in verses 18 through 19, don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. That doesn't fit you anymore. But rather be filled with the Spirit and address each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We can hear that kind of instruction. But I think we need to recognize that there are things that keep us from really grabbing hold of that instruction and having it take root and bring forth fruit in our lives. We don't often hear, receive, take in, bring forth the fruit of instruction when God talks to us. And I want to just take a moment and identify some of these impediments. Why don't we change and live the way God tells us to live? What blocks that? Well, here's one impediment. I think, brothers and sisters, we need to acknowledge together that we do not feel the sting of going our own way, right? We don't really feel the sting of going our own way. It is a grim fact that for a time, foolishness feels good. For a time, the Bible says men love darkness. Why do men love darkness? Because darkness is comfortable. Now, to be sure, Paul tells us that if you're living in ways God does not want you to live, he calls these... Um, in verse 8, uh, 
uh, sorry, uh, verse 11, he calls it these works of darkness. Like you're in the dark, doing the things people do in the dark. You're not living in the light with God. You're, you're over here living a different way, in the darkness. He says those works will always be unfruitful. So while for a time, living kind of aside from what God wants, contrary to what God wants, it's comfortable for a time, it will always in the end be unfruitful. It will not bring forth fruit. And we can see this as we look at the world. If, if you live in ignorant, obstinate, arrogant, short-sighted, impulsive, wasteful, self-serving, grasping, self-protective, vindictive, undisciplined ways, you will find those ways of living will bring emptiness. Maybe not right away. They will bring misery. Maybe not right away. But that will be the end. They will be unfruitful. You will find that at some point, for example, ignorance is no longer bliss. You know, being a foolish person feels good for a while. Ignorance is bliss for a while until it isn't. At some point, you'll begin to experience the fact that you do not have strength. You do not have skill because you refuse to learn. You refuse to train, and that will bite. At some point, you realize that your selfishness has cut you off from all but the most superficial relationships in your life, and that will, there will be pain in that. But even when we begin to experience how unfruitful works of darkness are, how unfruitful it is to live in ways that God has told us not to, even then, that pain will often still be more comfortable to us than the pain of change. It'll be more comfortable to stay the way we are, even when it's bringing consequences, than to what the Bible calls repent and to grow. It's interesting, I think we just have to be honest about this as we look at our lives. There is often no real urgency. Dare I say, there is no desperation about the mess that we're making by going our own way. We may not even feel it or see it yet. When we do feel it or see it or, see it or feel it, we're not really, there's not a lot of urgency. I, 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 I get this when I talk to people who have come out of recovery backgrounds, like AA. You know, people do AA zealously. Like, they are so into AA. They, they, they attend the meetings. They go through the steps. They do the homework. They get a mentor. They work this out in ways that put a lot of church-going Christians to shame. There's an urgency about people in recovery programs. Why? It's very simple. Because the pain of continuing to drink yourself into destruction has now become far worse than the pain of AA. I mean, AA is a pain. But staying as an alcoholic is more of a pain. So there's zeal about being an AA. Being a Christian is a pain. But often you don't see in us who are Jesus people, there's not a similar urgency. So, you know, the, the alcoholic is, has an urgency. I need to do something about it. I'm going to kill myself or kill somebody else. There is often not a similar urgency about, let's say, the quarreling and grumbling in our homes. Do you feel urgency about that? Are you desperate to be free of that? There's not often an urgency about the sheer ingratitude of our hearts. We don't feel a lot of desperation about the fact that Paul says, make the best use of the time in verse 16. We waste all kinds of time. We don't feel urgency about that. We don't feel a lot of urgency about the fact that sometimes we are so much more invested in how we look to people than we are in how our character actually affects people, but we're not desperate, we're not urgent. Why are we not urgent? Because we really don't expect any dire consequences. I can go on being nasty to my wife for the rest of my life and I can just kind of, you know, be comfortable in that. Why, when I can be comfortable, 
in my sin, comfortable in these works and ways of darkness. Why, if that is, if that is still somewhat comfortable to me, why would I face the pain of crucifying these bad habits? Somebody said something to me recently that has really, really, really hit me hard. You will not change until the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. That's an impediment to instruction. We just don't feel the sting of going our own way. Now, there's another side of the coin. This is a second impediment, though. If we do feel the sting, if we do feel the sting, it often feels like rejection or failure. God surely is just done with me because I'm such an idiot. Or I have ruined my life. That's an impediment to receiving instruction. You know, it's interesting. One of the turnoffs in a lot of churches is kind of the mood of superiority. You're around these people in this church setting, and there's just kind of this mood where they look at people and they're like, how could you not know that? How could you do that? How could you not do that? And they're just kind of looking down on people. And when you're in a you know, community like this, it kind of stratifies people into the goodies and the baddies, right? You've got the, you know, the, kind of the people that have it together and the people who don't. One of the beautiful things about living in a culture of God's grace is it just dissipates all of that because we can all just stipulate right up front, every single one of us, every single one from the pastor who supposedly is supposed to have it together, haha, right on down into the pews, every single one of us, we can just stipulate we're all ignorant. We're all wayward. We're all sinners who need a savior. But what is also true of all of us in the culture of God's grace is that we are upheld by the love of God that is merciful to our sin. Do you feel sting because God is disciplining you? Because you have disobeyed him, you have displeased him? Do you know what the Bible says that sting is? That's not rejection. That is your father's love. He only disciplines those he loves. His love is merciful to our sin. And it is patient. You feel like a failure when you feel the sting of your bad ways of living? There are no pass-fail tests in the life of the Christian. Jesus has already secured your relationship with God and your future inheritance. This is not a pass-fail test. When you feel the sting of your you know, consequences, of your bad ways of living, God is bringing growth. When you have good days, God is growing you. When you have bad days, God is growing you because his love is patient. But his love, even as it is merciful and it is patient, it is also determined. God is far more determined than you are that you're going to bear fruit. And so we can have lives and communities that are morally serious. Like we need to seriously do what God has said. But we are serious from a place of peace. We are in Christ. His death paid for our sins. His resurrection guaranteed that our debt is paid. And so it is true as you go along and God is disciplining you as a children and you will sometimes you know, have to be face to face with, you made a mess of things. We will be humbled, but we're never shamed. The just man, the proverb says, falls seven times and rises again because God is with him. And so the mood, as you read through Ephesians 5 here, the mood in our Father's house, you notice how often thanksgiving is mentioned, like in verse 20, just giving thanks always for everything. There's a kind of a thankful, almost playful mood in God's house because we have a good Father. When we feel the sting, and we should, it's not rejection, it's not failure. But if you feel rejection and failure, it can impede your hearing and receiving instruction. There's a last impediment I'll mention. We don't feel the sting of going our own way. When we do feel it, it feels like rejection or failure. Thirdly, we do not see how instruction brings freedom. 
Do you notice that the point of God bringing us into the light, making us his children, as Paul says here, teaching us how to live and walk as children of light? Look at verse 9. What's the point? The point is God is bringing forth the fruit of light. Do you know what fruit is? Fruit is what happens when a plant is freed. When it is freed through watering and weeding and pruning and trellising. See, the plant must be left alone. Stop dumping water on me. Stop pulling out weeds. Stop chopping off parts of me. Stop, you know, tying me up to this trellis. But what is the, what is the person doing who is tending the plant that way? You are freeing this plant to bear fruit. A horse has to be freed to win races through training. A student has to be freed to excel through the rigors of instruction. It's interesting that God took a bunch of former slaves out of Egypt. They had no clue how to live as royalty, no clue whatsoever. And he took them out to Mount Sinai and he gave them what the Hebrew word is. He gave them the Torah. Do you know what Torah means in Hebrew? It means instruction. Because, sure, their chains were broken, but now God need to f needed to free their hearts and minds to make them ready to rule. You know, you can break the, the, the chains of slaves, but you've got to also break their mindset because they think like slaves and their habits because they have habits of slaves. And so God gives instruction to free them. We often don't see that, do we? But it is that prospect of the freedom God is bringing as he instructs us that really carries us when God's ways, as we're trying to put them on, they just feel very foreign and very difficult. Freedom's uncomfortable when you're used to slavery. So these are impediments, impediments to instruction. But now I'd like you to notice very briefly, especially in this Ephesians text, how God's way of instructing moves past these impediments of not feeling this thing of going our own way, feeling like rejects or failures, not really seeing how instruction brings freedom. Notice how God's way of instructing us moves past these impediments. So we've talked about impediments to instruction. Now let's just take a moment with God's way of instruction. I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. Notice as you kind of just scan through this text, Ephesians 5. So God, he's, he's teaching us, he's instructing us, and he designed us, he knows how we work. And his way of instructing us reflects his wisdom. He knows how we work. And if you look through this, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21, we just read it, you will notice that God's instruction through the Apostle Paul to his people, God's instruction builds from the relational to the informational to the transformational. From the relational to the informational to the transformational. Because deep in the roots of this whole text is this relational thing. You are loved by God. And when you live with God and you know his love and you enjoy his love, what does that evoke from us? It evokes trust. He's, the Lord is good. It evokes admiration. Who would not want to love like this? It evokes a desire to imitate. Be imitators of God, Paul says at the very beginning, as loved children. That's the relational piece. Now, with that relational piece, you can then have the informational piece. Because I don't know how to live as a child of God. I don't know how to imitate God or walk in love like Jesus walked. Well, Paul goes on and says, here's how. Now you have some information. This is how to become like your father. And that then leads to the transformational. Because we love the father, because we admire the father, we want to be like the father. And now we know how. We now are in a position to choose to put off contrary ways that don't look like him and to walk in love as Christ loved us, as the Father has loved us. There was a, um, an educator in the late 19th century 
who said that the development of children in education proceeds this way. I am, I ought, I can, I will. I am, I ought, I can, I will. I am, I know who I am. I know whose I am. That's the relational piece. And therefore I ought, because I know who I am and I know whose I am and I know what I love and what I admire. That's what I want to be. I ought to be like that. Now you're motivated. That's the relational piece. Then I can, because instruction has to show you how. Now you're equipped. I understand how to become what I ought to become. I can do it. And therefore I will do it because I know who I am. I know what I ought to be. And I know I can. That's what Paul does here in this text. He says, basically, this is how you got to think as Christians. I am God's child. I ought to be like him. That's the desire of my heart because he's awesome. <laughs> Here's how I can become like him. So empowered by his Holy Spirit, equipped by his word. Here's how I can become like him. Putting off certain things, putting on certain things. And because I want to be like my father and I know how, I will act accordingly. That is the pattern of all effective Christian instruction. That's the pattern here and throughout the scriptures. And I want just to briefly spotlight, and then we'll be done, briefly spotlight a few things about this way of instruction, from the relational to the informational to the transformational. The first thing I want to spotlight is this. For the seed of information, to bear the fruit of transformation, love must prepare the heart. Love must prepare the heart. If you're going to throw the seed of information and expect the fruit of transformation, love has to till the soil of the heart. That is not only, as you guys know, that is not only true in one-on-one -on -one relationships. I mean, if you're a parent, if you're a mentor, if you're in any kind of leadership position whatsoever, you understand if the people you are trying to instruct do not trust you, if they don't like you, if they don't have affection for you, if they don't have any admiration at all for you, if there's no openness in the relationship because you've loved them well, you're probably wasting your time. Trust and affection and openness are absolutely foundational for instruction to stick. Love must prepare the heart. But that isn't just true in one-on-one -on -one relationships. That is also true in the broader culture of a community because it really does take a village to bring transformation in lives. I really believe, I mean, that's why we have the body of Christ, not just one-on-one -on -one Christians. What we really need for instruction to take root and bring fruit is we need to find ourselves in a kind of village, quote-unquote, in which the love of the Father and the love of Christ are visibly at work in our relationships. You are going to have very stunted growth in a church or any other Christian community. You are not likely going to have any second generation in a Christian community where the relationships are cold and critical and contentious. I mean, I can say this after 21 years of parenting. If there has been a key in our parenting, and Sarah and I would tell you there are many things about our parenting we would not recommend, and I can assure you our children would tell you there are things they would not recommend. But if there has been a key in our parenting, it is this. We have relentlessly, from the time the kids were little, little people, we have reinforced to them, you are loved by God. That is what your baptism means. You belong to the Lord. As a brother said to me last week, God loves you more than mommy and I do. We have just hammered that home. And we have also reinforced and tilled the soil of their hearts with our love. Very imperfect love. We have had some hard times. We have sinned against our kids a lot. But the thing we have constantly been after is, in our relationship with them, we want them to know we are listening. Because that's what love does. We are seeking to reason with them. Because that's what love does. 
We are caring for them as the individual people they are, trying to understand how this particular child works and paying attention to that, because that's what love does. And waiting, because growth takes time. God's love, our love, and i got to tell you, it's been you guys' love too. Because we've been had the, have the privilege of raising our kids in a community where we could point our children to the saints and point them to saints who love them. Part of the reason why my kids today are serious Christians, they are not playing games, they are serious disciples of Jesus, is because you have loved them well. That is what love does. It plows the heart and makes it receptive to instruction that can bear fruit. And I wanted to say to you men... The love of earthly fathers statistically plays a major role in this. Fathers, if you want the seed of information to bring transformation, love must prepare the heart. Anthony Bradley wrote an article, I think it came out this week, and this is what he said. He did a whole data study on what keeps kids in the Christian faith. This is what he found. He says, here's, what's the, here's what the data shows. The most important predictor, the most important predictor of faith persistence in children is the child's relationship with their father. In the absence of biological fathers, grandfathers and mature father figures are equally effective. That's interesting. What kind of fathers? Warm fathers. What is a warm father? Warmth in parenting refers to behaviors like showing affection, providing comfort, expressing concern, nurturing, and offering support to the child. It indicates a parent's love and acceptance of the child and stands in contrast to the absence or withdrawal of parental love. Nancy Piercy says it best, quote, a father can be a pillar of the church, a moral exemplar, and have perfectly correct theology, but if he is perceived as cold and distant, the child will not follow him, will not adopt his religious convictions, unquote. The stoic cold father who believes that being a good father involves focusing solely on financial provision, discipline, and acting as the at-home theologian, does not contribute to effective faith transmission. Love must prepare the heart. The second thing I want to briefly spotlight, and I am almost done, is you look through this text, you realize, second thing about God's instruction, it cannot be assumed that God's children know how to grow, even in ways that they want to. You can't assume people know how to grow even in ways they want to. If love is the goad in instruction, it is knowledge that provides the nails these fixed, concrete, tangible focal points for growth. Because what does Paul do in this text? He says, you want to be like the Father? How do you be like the Father? I don't know. He says, I'll tell you. Here's some curriculum. You can back up even into chapter 4. He says, I'll give you some curriculum. Here, here's, some, here's some points, the kind of fixed points you can focus on. Be angry, but don't sin. That's like the Father. Stop stealing. Like in our time, stop stealing by taking on more and more and more and more debt. Just stop. Reverse that cycle until God has given you a surplus to give to other people. That, that's like the father, because the father is generous. Your kids are too online. You all know it. Well, what are you going to do about that? How can we develop body life, like the body of Christ life, and just physical embodied life that our kids love more? Like, that's, that, that's imparting knowledge. Because we can talk all day about, you know, growing great Christian disciples in this church. How? We need knowledge. We need curriculum. Now, it's interesting. Paul, you'll notice, he doesn't give a zillion details. He's not trying to, you know, dictate everyone's daily habits in, in detail. But he does not leave that phrase, imitate the Father. He does not leave that phrase, walk in love like Jesus, just floating in the ether. Like, we're going to walk around just kind of feeling this buzz of love. What, what does that even mean? 
We need knowledge on the ground. What does it look like? How do we grow? And we have to grow together in knowing what to put off to be like Jesus, what to put on to imitate the Father, and how do we do those things. We can't assume that we know how to grow. That's what instruction is for. The last thing I just spotlight about God's instruction in this text, you'll notice nowhere in this entire text are God's children ever told, look carefully how you feel. Look carefully how you feel. God never says it. Because, brothers and sisters, if that, com- if that statement be imitators of God, if that is a loving invitation, and it is a loving invitation, it is also an absolutely sovereign command. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That is non-negotiable. And by the way, walk in love. That love that you and I are called to imitate, that love of Christ that took the shape of a cross, it will not always feel good. And one of the goads of biblical wisdom is that God's ways are not our ways. We are not safe following our own hearts. We are called to trust our Father and keep his commandments, even if every impulse in our feelings is pulling the other way. And it is as we do that, we discover that shock of shocks, we are becoming free. Fruit is beginning to grow. We are being transformed from glory to glory until we are fit to rule the Father's kingdom. Ah, well, that's it. Identity, instruction, inheritance. Brothers and sisters, I really pray that our all-wise shepherd will nail these things down in our hearts and that he will goad us toward the fullness of life that is found in his awesome love. Make it so. We pray our Lord and our God in Jesus' good name.